BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, June 1st starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back a great guest, a great editor, a great progressive. He's talking to Miles Camp-Lassen of In These Times. The Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. And uh, if you like newsletters and articles and audio clips from Ben Jarofsky, they're all over there too. Just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, B as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Chicago Asylum Thursday, and here's why. Uh, Yesterday was the big uh, city council vote on the $51 million uh, in relief money uh, that uh, Brandon Johnson, Mayor Brandon, Mayor Brandon Johnson, man, that's still hard to say. Mayor Brandon Johnson. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, Mayor Johnson uh, asked the council last week, if you recall, to appropriate $51 million to help with the resettlement of thousands of asylum seekers uh, who've been busted to Chicago by uh, Texas Governor Gregory Abbott, maggot man from Texas. Uh, it was a deferred publish, which is a parliamentary move to put off for, for another meeting. Uh, the meeting was held yesterday and there was a, uh, a raucous uh, debate, lots of uh, motions, lots of speeches, pro and con. Uh, and when the vote went down, it was pretty overwhelming. I don't have the exact number. You think I would have the number? Folks, you think I would be prepared? But uh, my distinguished guest, Miles Kamplasen, I'm sure has memorized the number. But I think it was something along the lines of 35 to 13, something like that, with one person abstaining, or 36 to 13. I can't remember. It was a, it was an overwhelming vote. Everyone's very passionate. And one of the big issues raised came from a black alderman from the South Side uh, who voted against the measure on the grounds that uh, their communities had been overlooked for years and years and years by the city of Chicago. And now all of a sudden, asylum seekers were coming to town and there was money for them. Uh, and it's not fair, it's not right, uh, and uh, it's uh, inconsistent. All of the points that they raised to explain their no vote. And I, ladies and gentlemen, I have to admit, I had a hard time. I had a really hard time buying that. I mean, I know when they say their communities have been the targets of disinvestment, down through the years. They're absolutely correct. I cannot argue with Gregory Mitchell or Anthony Beal or uh, any, uh, David Moore from the 17th Ward, any of the aldermen who voted no on the grounds that black communities in the city of Chicago, the South Side and the West Side have been just really overlooked is the most euphemistic way of saying it. Some might say intentionally starved as part of the plan uh, to encourage black people to move out of Chicago. That was an argument that Chris Kennedy, of all people, made 
in the 2018 gubernatorial cycle. Remember that, ladies and gentlemen? The planning decisions by Rahm Emanuel were intended to encourage black people to live, leave Chicago. And when he said it, he was denounced. The powers that be in this city, corporate Chicago, civic Chicago, editorial Chicago. How dare he say that about our mayor? Man, I just shake my head. Kennedy was right, just as those aldermen are right. There's been massive disinvestment in the black communities in the city of Chicago. Most of it's through our TIF program. Now, I know people don't like when I mention TIF programs. Half of them don't. You still don't know what it means. And a good chunk of you just want to ignore it. I remember. Oh, my goodness. I remember. This is a memory from back in like 2007 or eight, having a conversation when two aldermen have long since left the city council, Ed Smith from the West Side and Joe Moore, Jolton Joe Moore from the 49th War. Used to be progressive. But then he said, to hell with this progressive stuff. <laughs> I'm going to cut a deal, man. I'm sick of being a lefty. And he cut a deal with Mayor Daley, and then he uh, kept that deal with uh, Mayor Rahm until the voters in the 49th Ward said, sorry, Joe, get out of here. But I remember saying to them, having a conversation with them about the TIF program in the Chicago, the only significant chunk of change the city of Chicago has for economic development and how the program is, is so flawed, automatically flawed, it will always favor the well-to-do, the gentrifying neighborhoods and overlooked the communities that need it the most. And they rolled their eyes at me as if to say, there you go again, Ben. You can't change it. You can't fight it. You just got to go along with it. So year after year, the Chicago City Council has approved TIFs and TIFs deals that have benefited, benefited gentrified communities, most on the north side, mostly white, that need the investment the least, and have hit hardest the poorer neighborhoods on the west and the south side that are predominantly black. And I never heard boo from any of these aldermen who were denouncing the $51 million that Mayor Johnson wanted to allocate to deal with asylum seekers. In fact, just four years ago, 2019, many of these same aldermen voted for Mayor Rahm's Lincoln Yards deal. $1.3 billion with a B, ladies and gentlemen. For a gentrifying neighborhood in the north side of Chicago that didn't need the money, would gentrify without it. They raised your property taxes. Every single person in South Shore, Roseland, Auburn Gresham, your property taxes went up. You're paying more property taxes. Renters in Roseland, South Shore, Auburn Gresham, you're paying more rent because your landlord's paying more in property taxes to pay for Lincoln Yards. Didn't hear any protest. The same people who are so mad that $51 million was being allocated to help asylum seekers went along with $1.3 billion. And by the way, I'm not just going to uh, concentrate on black aldermen who realize that there's this competition between black and Hispanic in the city of Chicago that was partly fostered by Mayor Daley back in the 90s when he created the HDO. I'm not just concentrating on them. All these Northwest and Southwest side aldermen who say they're outraged. <laughs> That's you, Napolitano, Marty Quinn, all of you. Every single one of you. I'm looking out for the taxpayers of my war, $51 million. You guys voted for that $1.3 billion. How come it's okay to give $1.3 billion to some developer 
who doesn't need it to gentrify a neighborhood that doesn't need the subsidies because it's already gentrifying. But it's an outrageous increase in our property taxes and wasteful government to set aside $51 million for asylum seekers. You can't answer that question because you know that the honest answer is that one is a clouded deal and the other isn't. And that people are paying attention because of their own like biases and hatreds to this. So all of a sudden, to cover up bias and hate, you're talking about inequity or you're talking about waste. You didn't talk about inequity and you didn't talk about waste year after freaking year when it was Mayor Daley and Mayor Rahm spending billions of your property taxes in gentrifying neighborhoods. Now you're talking about the happiest people of all, of course, MAGA, Gregory Abbott. They just sit back watching Chicago with a squabble. But, you know, Chicago... You're an easy town to sort of like get to fighting among yourselves because it's like this like tribal hatreds in this city that are so deep and smoldering for so many years. Never seen anything like it until I moved here. I was like, wow. And, and is it ever going to end? Are people just ever going to stop like hating on each other because you look a little different or you live in a different neighborhood or you don't worship at the same church? Well, apparently not. Well, let me concentrate on the good news. The good news was an overwhelming vote for the amount of money. And I will close by saying this. I agree, believe it or not, with some of the arguments raised by Raylo and the others who said, Chicago can't keep affording to do this. Chicago's going to need assistance. If Gregory Abbott is going to routinely send busloads of asylum seekers to Chicago, Joe Biden, you got to step in. You can't be hiding in the White House. You got to step in. You got to be the leader. You got to like make it easier for people in Chicago to accept new residents. We struggle with this. They don't look like us. They don't talk like us. We're afraid because we're a very tribalistic city. But if you help us, Joe Biden, President Biden, Chicago voted for you with over 80% of her votes want to mention if you help us a little bit with some money so that chicago's not shouldering the cost they'll make it a little easier we got to stop pretending as though this is just a local problem financing the resettlement i welcome the asylum seekers i'll repeat what i always say if we were going to welcome fifty thousand amazon office workers and pay well over $2 billion, Lord knows how much uh, Rahm and Rana were going to offer them, that I'm sh- we can certainly handle eight to nine or 10,000 asylum seekers. But Joe Biden, you got to help out. Quit hiding in the White House. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest who's been patiently listening, Miles Kampflossen, editor and writer for In These Times, distinguished leftist, good friend of the Ben Jarofsky Show, not afraid to tell you what the world looks like from a leftist point of view. Welcome back, Miles. Thank you. Very good to be here, Ben. And um, so before uh, I move on to debt ceiling, oh, my God, so many things. Miles stunned me with this. (laughs) He sent me this text you sent me is unbelievable. Donald Trump denouncing the anti-woke is just like just too much. So before we get into all that other stuff, any thoughts on yesterday's debate in the Chicago City Council on the $51 million appropriated? 
uh, by the council to help with uh, resettling asylum seekers. Go. Well, I think if you ask uh, Tom Tunney about it, he would say there's been, you know, not enough focus on uh, investment in the north side and downtown. We've been spending too much money on the south and west side. I think that's what he said a couple months ago. Um, yeah, no, it's all absurd. I think that the it, it's really instructive to look at uh, the speech given by Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor. Um, who I think really did voice a lot of the legitimate and righteous anger over this um, long fraught history of disinvestment that has led to this really horrible state of affairs where, you know, there was just a report put out recently by the Urban League about the state of Black Chicago um, that accounted for about 85,000 Black residents having left the city over the past decade plus uh, but also shows just the how segregation works at an economic level, right? And the and the racial wealth gap and how concentrated that is in this city where black residents have like half the salaries, the the, the incomes of white residents. And um, when you look at home ownership, when you look at um, things like environmental issues and access to clean air, um, the way that this city operates has long led to a much poorer state of affairs for residents of color. And those are long-term issues that need to be addressed. And I think that um, Alderwoman Taylor really voiced some of that in her, her speech, um, but she ended up voting for this money for migrants because we can't keep operating under this scarcity mindset of you know clawing for scraps. And we need to look at uh, things through a compassionate humanitarian lens. And that's really the only way to approach this particular issue. I think it's not like these migrants chose to come to Chicago. They were bused here, right? And they were, um, now they live among us. We need to treat people as human beings, as neighbors. And that you're, I think you're right, Ben, that that means there's going there has to be state level and federal funding as well. That can't all be on um, the city of Chicago and Chicago taxpayers to account for, but also we need to have a humane way of dealing with this rather than having people sleep in police district floors because those are the only institutions that are open 24 hours a day. There should be, you know, actual community centers and, and housing options. At the same time, we do, do need to deal with these long festering problems. And that it was the promise of um, Brandon Johnson's campaign. Obviously, that's not going to be solved in a couple of weeks, you know, since he took office, but that needs to be the North Star in which um, our politics head towards. And I think that, you know, the, the the votes that have been put together so far with especially Carlos uh, Rosa as a floor leader shows that Brandon Johnson does have a majority he can work with to get through the type of policies he wants to um, put forward. It's going to, what it's in, in the fall that he's going to release a budget, I think. And that's going to be a real test of whether, you know, will, uh, it's like a put up or shut up moment. He says he's not going to, you know, do regressive taxes, but also raise revenue to uh, finally invest in long neglected um, neighborhoods and parts of the city. And that'll be an opportunity to show that this isn't just about dealing with short-term crises, but rather building a plan to deal with um, 
you know, creating a more equitable city uh, across, uh, you know, yeah, all across all 50 wards. And unlike what Tom Tunney has to say about, you know, we've been, been neglecting downtown and the north side, we need to realize that if you just look at, uh, you know, people's income, people's quality of life, people's longevity of life, no, that's the complete opposite uh, reality of what people are dealing with, and that the areas that need the most support are the ones that have long been um, forgotten within um, the halls of power in the city. And th this will be a real opportunity to to address those things. And so, you know, yeah, I would just point to Jeanette Taylor and not only you know her rhetoric, but also the way that she ended up voting to to see a, a compassionate response to the crisis we face. All right. And uh, I know longtime listeners know exactly who Tom Tunney is, but just in case there's a few rookies out there, Tom Tunney, uh, former alderman of the 44th Ward of the city of Chicago, which is a north side ward. Uh, he's a restaurateur and uh, he's what you could call, I guess, a uh, liberal on um, social issues uh, and a conservative on pocketbook issues. And somehow or other, he was convinced uh, that Lori Lightfoot, who he had supported, uh, lost because she favored the West and South Side wards uh, over uh, the North Side wards. It was the most twisted, up is down, uh, and down is up view of Chicago. We made fun of him so much on the show, Miles Complasson. Uh And what an embarrassment uh, that this man was the only. And I'm happy to say it is his ward, the 44th ward. I'm happy to say this. They voted for Brandon Johnson over Paul Vallis. Uh, the MAGA sympathizer that Tom Tunney uh, endorsed uh, in the mayoral race against Brandon Johnson. So he doesn't even represent his own ward, although it's a little close to call. All right, uh, let's move on uh, to the debt ceiling issue in Washington. Been really uh, curious your thoughts on this. Uh, and uh, you, I know that uh, you do uh, edit a lot of articles written by leftists who uh, uh, analyze uh, national issues and so I know you have some deep thoughts on this. Uh, that It passed the House. The compromise deal worked out by Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. The vote in the Senate is probably going to take place today, probably while we're speaking. I may even be taking place. Your general feelings uh, about the compromise negotiated between Kevin McCarthy and President Biden. We'll talk about up is down and warped, you know, political realities. This is, you know, an encapsulation of that where we for months heard from the president that there wasn't going to be no negotiation, that we're not going to deal with hostage takers. And yet here we are talking about a negotiated deal, uh, a settlement that doesn't accomplish any democratic priorities that is basically, you know, a giveaway to vested interests um, that want to see a conservative approach to our economy. Uh, and that is what is being sold. And so, and and the real up is, up is down nature of it is the fact that Democrats were had, had to be the ones to take this over the line in the House rather than Republicans, even though this was a deal negotiated by Kevin McCarthy at the behest of right-wing Republican senators, they ended up being the ones to break from the, um, their party leadership. And it was Democrats that were in the position of putting it over the line, even though this is a deal that we should just be clear. There's two ways to look at this, right? And, and the way that it's being sold by mainstream Democrats and certainly the White House is that really this is only small changes um, to some particular programs and that it's 
in, in effect, the way that they're making up for the fact that they basically hoodwinked the public by saying they wouldn't negotiate and then negotiated, they're saying that this is more of a traditional budget negotiation and that there's plans for the future in terms of the budget that this is going to relate to. And so it wasn't really over the threat of default. Uh, but we all know it was because look when this vote is taking place on the literal day that Janet Yellen that the Fed uh, said that there would be a default, right? And so this is clearly an attempt to to avoid that. But what the White House is selling, yeah, is saying that this is nowhere near what the Republicans' initial um, proposals were, that there's all kinds of programs that are protected, like Social Security and Medicare, most um, importantly, but also that, you know, even the minor changes that happen to programs like uh, SNAP, um, where there were, where there are work requirements included um, and the IRS funding. These are all just minor tweaks. And so that ultimately it was Democrats that came out ahead in negotiations. But that belies a misunderstanding that any negotiation is a failure when it comes to, you know, taking the Republican point of view as a given that the debt ceiling, that defaulting on um, national finances and dues of the United States is a political uh, gambit that can be used to extract concessions from the opposing party. And, and the fault lies at the feet of Democratic leadership who held majorities in Congress and, of course, held the White House and yet refused to. They could have, you know, under the previous Congress, passed a debt ceiling a bill that would just extend the debt ceiling for a generation, right? If they wanted to, that certainly was within, and there were plenty of progressives that were demanding that. And yet they didn't. They sat on their hands, and they now claim, oh, they wouldn't have the votes or something to do that. But what that did was set us up for a replay of 2011. And it's true that this is you know, much less uh, devastating in terms of the financial impacts of a deal than what Obama negotiated back in 2011, which we all remember was 900 billion in spending cuts in this tranche and then sequestration, which ended up cutting all these domestic programs. Um, that was a much more significant uh, cut. However, we're still operating under that same mindset that we, that Democrats are just in the position of having to uh, appease Republicans whenever they wanna use this as their one. Cause it's, you know, the, the Democrats, can still control the Senate, they control the White House, and they're in a position to um, effectively pass or not pass the types of bills they want to. The one area that Republicans have some leverage is this debt ceiling, because they could plunge the uh, country into a catastrophic default. And they used that. And as a result, there are going to be new work requirements, which is going to mean that it's going to be harder to access um, you know, funding for people that are facing poverty. It's there's you know this uh, horrible uh, permitting deal in there to get mansion support, basically around um, Mountain Valley Pipeline, which was just snuck in there um, for his support. There, the IRS, which is meant to actually cut down on tax cheats, right, and to get more money for the federal government because we know we have a you know ridiculous tax system. Uh, there was money put in the, in the um, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, for that. Now there's less money for that as a result of this deal, which is all going to have a negative effect on our ability to deal with um, the debt and the deficit. So it's all kind of up is down. And I think it's a huge capitulation. And it's a show. It's a, 
especially because there were alternatives, right? The the, the White House had. We you know, people talk about the tr- uh, minting the trillion dollar coin um, that they, they could just put into the Treasury um, to cover all of our expenses. They could invoke the Fourteenth Amendment. None of that was seriously considered. And instead, I think Biden wanted to be just seen as a bipartisan deal maker. Like that was always the promise of his administration was that he could work with across the aisle. And that is such a far cry from where we were in when early 2021, when Biden came into office and people were lauding him as the reincarnation of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he was going to usher in this new era of progressivism. Well, you know, a, a truly progressive president like an FDR would have played hardball and not have just tried to make a a deal with McCarthy that is only going to, yes, serve conservative principles and then get his party in line to to back it. It's just a replay of uh, the Obama era dynamic that we were told that we had moved past because Biden was part of those negotiations and saw it and he wasn't going to fall for it again. Well, we did fall for it again. And that just sets this up for another, you know, we're going to go through this whole rigmarole in two years down the line and continue to do it. And this was an opportunity to break from that. And unfortunately, uh, Democratic leadership decided to just continue on the same uh, standard path of hurting working people in the interests of some bipartisan agreement. I think you hit it on the head there, uh, Miles, uh, when you started talking about the effort to... um, shape Biden as the bipartisan president, project that image. I think you're absolutely correct. And it, it, there's a connection between this, I'll bring it up now, and the, uh, <laughs> that uh, tweet that you sent me, which is just hilarious, of Donald Trump giving a speech and denouncing woke, the, the anti-woke sentiments. Like People say, woke, woke, woke. Uh, and thank you very much for sharing with me. I had, I had not seen that. It's hilarious. I believe that Trump and Biden are already looking toward the general election. Um, And there was that. So we'll get into this a little more when we talk about the dynamics in the Republican Party and where uh, MAGA is right now. Uh, But definitely uh, President Biden, to your point, uh, is trying to underscore the notion that he is a dealmaker who can cross party lines and be the bipartisan president and find compromise and accord where nobody else can. That was his calling card in 2020. You know, I didn't believe it from the get-go. You didn't believe it from the get-go. I don't even think anybody that came on my show, even the centrists believed it. Uh, and uh, But it's important to him to get those proverbial suburban swing voters uh, that the Democrats like Emmanuel and Axelrod and Obama and Biden are always worried about to get them to vote. Uh, Democrat is to say, we aren't partisan. We aren't uh, FDR. We aren't Miles Kampflassen. We aren't Ben Jarofsky's. We're bipartisan, middle America. We're just looking out for the average American citizen and we work with Republicans. And I think that's what he's trying to project here. And that's why he didn't do what you suggested, which is to end this uh, debacle once and for all when he had the opportunity to do so. Because that would have been denounced, I think, as a partisan maneuver. I would have welcomed it. You would have welcomed it. But I think that they're trying to project this notion of bipartisanship. Uh, And it's interesting how the left responded. Why don't you uh, get into that a little bit uh, in terms of how 
uh, Congress people voted uh, from the left. And then we'll leads into how Bernie's going to vote uh, in the Senate. But uh, your thoughts on how the, the, the vote went down uh, yesterday in the House? Well, certainly there's been uproar among progressives because they rightly see this as a capitulation. And you, I think you're, you're right that this was an attempt to, if anything, kind of, you know, form a cudgel between the general, like normal Republicans and the MAGA Republicans, because that's, you know, the Biden White House's whole campaign approach is to single out MAGA Republicans at, as, you know, the real enemies of democracy and the, the normal Republicans we can work with. But that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening, which is that, as you just said, you know, oh, we're going to make deals with Republicans to help the normal, you know, everyday blue collar working American. Well, this deal doesn't do that. This deal actually creates more um, hoops that people are going to who are facing poverty are going to have to jump through. It just sends more money to the Pentagon, actually increases, you know, Pentagon funding. And it has no, you know, supports for American workers or anything like that. It's it's still operates based on Republican principles, which are not to the benefit of most working people. And that's why you Bernie Sanders has come out and said he's going to vote against this deal. You have Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Caucus in the House, coming out strongly um, against the deal. And so th I think that that's instructive because. Biden was initially had progressives as his kind of main stalwarts that were going to back his agenda. And what you saw is that initially there were a number of Democrat only attempts to, you know, make big policy. And obviously the biggest legislative achievements were on party line partisan votes, whether it was the American Rescue Plan, the initial, you know, massive omnibus stimulus that had, yeah, stimulus checks, uh, enhanced unemployment insurance, all of that, or even the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which finally invested some money in the climate. That was a partisan bill. And people don't care about how, I mean, I think that it's absurd to think that something like a debt ceiling vote is going to change voters who voted for the debt ceiling bill. If you got bipartisan support, that's going to help you electorally or politically. It, all that really matters is the impact on actual Americans. And this the impact on voters is not going to be a positive one from this bill. If you're going to act in a way that's bipartisan, it should be for the benefit of you know, the mass of working people in this country that are going to face the consequences. And this bill is definitely not to their benefit. And that's why you see progressives voting against it. The Democrats that are voting for it are doing it because the White House needs their support so that we don't default because we are still operating under this hostage taking mentality that now has just become part of our normal political, you know, waters that we swim in. And when we could have cast it out and rightly seen it as, you know, if you're going to be upset about MAGA Republicans and the extreme right taking all these extreme steps to, um, you know, create conditions that are anti-democratic, this is a, an exact example of that. And the, as much as we provide some backing of, of this as a normal way of doing business in Washington, that is caving in to the MAGA right. And Kevin McCarthy is certainly, uh, you know, a representative of that. And yet we're somehow instead being told that, no, this is a deal with the 
adults in the room or something like that. I just think that that's a fundamental misunderstanding. And I think Democrats will pay the price for it. And I think it fits in with a larger trend of what we've seen, where there's policies like the expanded child tax credit, for example, that was initially in the American Rescue Plan. It was allowed to expire. And the idea was, oh, Republicans will never let that expire. And they're bound to get on board to, you know, re-up it because we, they don't want to see um, young mothers getting less money to pay for their babies and see child poverty spiking. Well, that was a fundamental misunderstanding then. Republicans were happy to let that expire, and it did expire. And now child poverty is basically uh, doubled under President Joe Biden because we've seen that program expire. And if we are operating under that mindset that, oh, we'll just count on the normal Republicans to provide basic backing of our social program agenda, that's just not going to happen. And it hasn't happened. And it's a lesson that's going to have to be learned. And I do think that a lot of progressives in Congress, certainly actual progressive voters, understand that. And yet we have not seen that reflected in um, national democratic leadership. So I think this is a moment that I, progressives rightly should be um, should be upset and, and and voice discontent because Biden's going to try to say, oh, we got one over on them, right? Because this deal isn't as bad as it could have been. Well, we want a good deal, not a less <laughs> bad deal. I mean, yeah. it's just an absurd way to look at it. It is pretty absurd. It is. Pretty, I think, I mean, we talked about this so much yesterday. I don't know if we have to repeat it, but it, uh, I can't resist myself. The imposition of the Mountain Valley pipeline deal in the middle of this is so weird and twisted. Uh, and it it's so illogical. Like the whispers of off-the-record commentators that you see quoted in the newspapers is that, well, this is all about helping Joe Manchin in West Virginia. And like, well, he's going to get clobbered, ladies and gentlemen, I think, anyway. You know, he's running against another Democrat-turned-Republican uh, who is Republican, okay? <laughs> so he's going to get clobbered. The polls show he's going to get clobbered. You're going to hurt your chances in Virginia. So from a political standpoint, whatever you gain, and that's in quotes, in a, a red state like West Virginia, you lose uh, in a, what is it? What's the color when it's not quite red and not quite blue? Is it purple? Is that what purple. they call it? Yeah, purple state. In West <laughs> I'm not that good with colors. I'm colorblind. Uh, in Virginia. So it just doesn't even make sense from a political standpoint. Uh, and it's such a bizarre, uh, like, existential choice. They offer us, uh, Miles, it's like, well, we have to vote for uh, death, uh, ecological doom, in order to protect us from economic doom. So we'll take a contribution to climate, to destroying the, uh, the environment, uh, and uh, with this pipeline, and that'll forestall economic doom, and we won't destroy the economy. Uh, it's it's a very strange way, in my humble opinion, to run government. Uh, but you know, they slipped; they felt compelled. I think Biden felt compelled to sneak that in because he promised Joe Manchin at some point that he was going to approve that deal, and this was his opportunity to sneak it in. So he snuck it in to help Joe Manchin, who's never done anything, Miles, for Joe Biden, and just. I can't quite. Can you help me with that? Like why Joe Biden is so determined to help Joe Manchin in West Virginia? Well, he might be scared that uh, that Manchin might mount a campaign under the, you know, no labels political logo, you know, to uh, that would 
help to, you know, increase Republicans likelihood of winning the presidency, you know, if Manchin was to what was to run. I don't think that's actually on the table, but certainly there's plenty of forces that are trying to get Manchin to mount a presidential campaign. And that might have played into the calculus. There's also these, you know, nominations of judges, uh, certainly, of, you know, labor sec there's an open position at the labor secretary. Julie Sue has been nominated. Manchin has held that up. Um, there's all kinds of reasons that you know, they're, they might be trying to curry favor with Manchin right now, um, not to mention his obstinance, in the, you know, when it comes to most any legislation. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think that most recent poll showed justice up by like 22 points or something in West Virginia. So I don't think there's a high likelihood that Manchin is going to be reelected as a senator, though, you know, we'll we'll see. For people in West Virginia, I do think that they should see that Manchin is probably the most important and effective senator in the Congress right now and would play a much more influential role in terms of getting things done for West Virginia than Justice would because he's, you know, holds all the cards apparently in this uh, relationship with the White House. So I do think he's probably doing more for, you know, for West Virginia in that way. That said, West Virginia residents are not going to be benefited by a pipe, a, a dirty pipeline going through their, their state. Um, there might be some economic value to it, but on the environmental um, side of things, no, it's going to be disastrous for both residents of West Virginia and just, you know, Americans as a whole. So you're right to say that, you know, Manchin has basically been a thorn in the side of this administration since the start. He was probably the reason Build Back Better died, which would have been, you know, a huge uh, accomplishment. Uh, historic achievement and allowed for the White House to have an actual record to run on of helping working people. I think there's still is plenty of positive economic, you know, signals that they can run on, but it would have been far more effective to have had, you know, the actual domestic spending program that the White House had proposed um, go through. And Manchin is largely the reason that that didn't happen. And so you're right to point out that he is somehow the beneficiary of this whole absurd <laughs> dynamic where he somehow holds the cards somehow holds the cards all right it gets into culture wars and let's move there uh because in in, in a um the most abstract sense mega opposition in my humble opinion uh to any kind of environmental control or regulation that protects the environment from destruction uh is uh, rooted in their belief that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the left to impose its views on them. And it's just the same basic theme as if you talk about uh, like the uh, the don't say gay bill in Florida or removing references uh, to anything that remotely resembles critical race theory from textbooks. Uh, anything that's offensive to uh, any parent has to get uh, wiped away from the books uh, when MAGA takes control. And you're right. By the way, you're absolutely correct. There is no distinction. It is MAGA. You can't show me a distinction in any Republican incumbent between uh, the most maggiest MAGA person uh, on any of these issues that I just mentioned. You, here in Illinois, you couldn't get a vote. There was no Republican voter for Pritzker's budget bill. So. Let's not pretend that there's a distinction. Uh, and so somehow the environment plays into that as well. You're trying to impose your views on us. You're, you've bought into a hoax. This is what governs and leads the Republican Party. 
uh, right now, uh, Miles. And now, look, you sent me this tweet from Trump. It's time to take the deep dive in this, where he denounces woke, which is like Trump pushing back on this movement that he created. Miles, I kid you not. I've told you this many times. I say this in the show. I get untold numbers of e- fundraising emails from Republicans and MAGA people. I, I would say half of them at <laughs> denounce woke. If suddenly the Republicans are going to drop woke from their rhetoric, their campaign rhetoric, I don't know what they're they got to rewrite all these press releases or all these fundraising appeals. What do you think's going on? With Donald Trump when he uh, made that speech, uh, is it just like a temporary uh, mind blip that's just going to ch- drop it tomorrow? Or do you think he's this is a fundamental uh, attempt by him to try to win over, like prepare already for the November 2024 election when he's trying to win over independent voters? Your thoughts? So to set it up, I mean, yes, he gave a speech today, former President Donald Trump in Iowa, because he's uh, campaigning. He is actively running for president again. And yeah, as part of the speech, he made made fun of the term woke, basically. He said, that's all I hear is woke, woke, woke. And he said, uh, you know, half the people can't understand, don't even know what it means. And he said he did, he doesn't like the term. Right. And you're right. This is the same person who brought to our political, you know, lexicon, this whole approach of treating the idea of any sense of like liberal social outlook as deeply un-American and woke became the stand-in term for that. And that has been the goal of the right in terms of messaging for the past number of years, so much so that when Ron DeSantis announced his campaign last week, he spent a huge chunk of it, the time talking about, you know, the woke mind virus that is afflicting the country and how we need to defeat it and how it's all cultural Marxism and using these terms that people don't understand. And Trump is right to point out that it is people can't define woke because it's just a standard term for the stuff that people get upset about. And largely, I think it's a stand in for um white grievance, you know, and, and people being upset at any changes in um, how uh, the American government is run, but also how the demographics of the country um, operate. Um, that's woke is just a stand in term. And now Trump is performing some political jujitsu by distancing himself from that. And I think that's what you can do when you are basically the leader of a movement and everybody else is just following that movement and you have all these other um candidates now like DeSantis that are running to you know get move themselves to the right on all these social issues you know DeSantis in Florida was the uh, help to push through the stop woke act right and like that's literally what he has based much of his political uh, persona on and Trump is able to even though he helped to bring out these truly um, horrible elements of our politics at, around white grievance and 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 rage and any type of social liberalism he's now able to distance himself from that and say you know kind of moderate himself and say he's he's more you know middle of the pack and these guys are the 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 you know, crazy ones that are out there. And I think that's what he's doing is he's trying to distance himself from the DeSantis mold, which is probably smart because in a general election, most people are not 
freaking out about drag shows or freaking out about, you know, libraries carrying books that have, you know, references to homosexuality in them or whatever the newest causes of these extreme um, right wing social uh, uh, warriors who are trying to, yeah, uh, embark on a culture war that would bring us back 50 years uh, uh, in the past or something. Most people are concerned about how they're going to access health care, how their kids are going to get child care, all of these things. Trump doesn't have a plan for that either. But, you know, who knows what he'll say? I mean, back in 2016, he said he was going to give everybody health care, right? Like he did kind of try to appeal to populist um uh, he had populist appeals in his campaign. Obviously, he didn't govern that way at all. He just passed tax cuts for rich people and banned Muslims and, you know, carried out an extreme right wing agenda. But he tried to run a more um, economic populist campaign. He got away from that in 2020. Who knows what he'll do um, this time around. But I do think that that's kind of what is going on is he's he's setting the terms. And if he's somehow distancing himself from woke, he has diehard followers that will carry on with him and everybody else on the Republican field is going to just try to triangulate themselves to not offend Trump and to appeal to his supporters while still differentiating themselves and um, taking advantage of the all the energy that is around these social issues that I'm telling you are not going to play as well in a general election campaign that might help to win a Republican primary. But um, yeah, bemoaning wokeness, I don't think is a path to um, the presidency and maybe maybe Trump sees that. Uh, yeah, and he also pushed back there a little bit on the uh, war on abortion rights. He pushed back a little bit, and I and I, I caution myself from reading it too much into what Donald Trump says from one day to the next because he's perfectly capable of saying completely contradictory things within the same hour, let alone this, uh, different days. But I, I must point out that to criticize DeSantis, uh, he, uh, he was critical of the uh, abortion uh, bill that DeSantis passed uh, in Florida. He called it, he said, even the MAGA people say it's cruel, which I'm like, I don't know any MAGA person that has ever used rhetoric like that. Uh, but he was trying to distinguish himself. Uh, so I'll ask you the question. I, I warned you already. I was going to ask you every uh, guest on the show uh, gets this. When you take a look at the Republican primary uh, that's shaping up, when you take a look at the battle in the Republican Party, again, 50 percent of the country, more or less, uh, is willing to vote Republican at any given time. Uh, who, who frightens you more, Trump or DeSantis? Well, I think they're, they both represent uh, noxious political ideology and would be disastrous, both when it comes to our, you know, the future of American democracy. If you saw what happened when, you know, Trump lost an election and the forces he unleashed um, on January 6th and has since in terms of uh, breaking confidence in our voting systems in American democracy. But DeSantis was right behind him and has defended him every step of the way in that and has never broke from claims of election fraud and you know, Trump being the rightful winner. Um, and so in that way, I think, you know, they're both threats on a democratic level, but also the agendas they would uh, carry out are, it, it, I'll just point out Trump might 
be trying to moderate a little bit more on abortion. And I think he's probably smart to do that because obviously abortion is a losing issue for Republicans right now. You saw that in the midterms. But he's the person that elevated the three Supreme Court justices who, uh, you know, overturned Roe v. Wade. So it's his doing, right? And that was his promise. He released that list of Supreme Court justices before he even um got elected and that was his way to appease the, the the right wing so that they would back his candidacy in 2016. Um so I'll just point that out. But if you look at what uh, is going on in Florida, I mean if you look at healthcare, if you look at education, it's some of the lowest rankings of any state in the country and and that's because and people try to say oh it's a miracle in Florida or something. That's not true when it comes to uh, the working class in Florida. There's plenty of rich people that are, you know, carrying the economy forward in Florida, but when it comes to average working people, um, Florida is a horrible state to um, to be living in right now, not to mention the anti-union campaign that DeSantis is carrying out. So I'll just preface to say I think that they're both truly awful. I'll on a political, you know, doing some political theory stuff or whatever. I, every poll you look at shows that Biden has the best chance against Trump. And so if Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee, I think Trump would be the better um, opponent for him in a general election. That's at least like how it looks right now. And DeSantis, we should say, as um, as atrocious as his campaign launch was, he did raise $8 million um, yeah. in the first day or so of announcing. And that goes to show he's going to be a fundraising juggernaut and be a real threat. And so I don't think people should discount DeSantis as uh, a candidate if somehow Trump stumbles or something and he's able to rise in the polls. And he might be better um, at going against Biden. But we've seen uh Biden has already beat Trump. And so I think he could probably beat him again. I mean, and so in that case, I think Trump, if that's the, the matchup, that would be better off for the future of the country. I wish our choices were much, much better than DeSantis and Trump and Biden and Trump and whatever, you know. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. we uh, you know, move on into the future of our lives, Ben, and have some better choices. Um, I know I'm nostalgic for when Bernie Sanders was running for president, but it's such a far cry from... Um, for, from having a real progressive champion um, in the race like that, that it's it's hard to even think about. But I guess that's um, that's my answer on on that one. Yeah, I uh, but uh, I'm I don't really trust those polls. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I don't trust those polls. DeSantis is largely unknown uh, to America. Political junkies like you and me, we know about Ron DeSantis, but the vast majority of Americans are not political junkies. We've learned that national races, local races, state race, you know, it's just the reality. Uh, and um, so they're barely paying attention. Uh, and so he's not Trump. You get what I'm saying? So a more of an independent minded voter who would never vote, decided he's never going to vote for Trump again or very unlikely to vote for Trump again, may be favoring DeSantis over Trump in an election, if you follow what I'm saying. Uh, but once the election kicks into gear and the spotlight goes on DeSantis, you watch. I I believe uh, those poll numbers will uh, fall. He's an easy person to make fun of, as Donald Trump is proving. <laughs> and quite effectively, I might add, uh, in this uh, campaign. Uh, you had an interesting take that uh, you might as well do the riff uh, before we did the show. Uh, Miles did a riff that uh, caught me off guard. I go, so what do you want to talk about, Miles? He goes, uh, Brandon versus DeSantis. And I thought I misheard him. I go, 
you mean Trump versus DeSantis? He goes, no, Brandon versus, as in Mayor Johnson versus DeSantis. Why don't you uh, share your riff uh, with the listeners? Well, I just think we're seeing, I mean, the, when uh, DeSantis announced his campaign last week on Twitter spaces, and it was just a complete nightmare launch. I know you discussed some of this. Listeners have probably uh, picked up on some of it, but, you know, the first like 20 minutes of it was all static and that horrible uh, demonic noise of like two people with a speakerphone on in the same room where it was that spiral of kind of a, a, a sonic uh, uh, distortion. And then when he came on, he was, yeah, talking about the woke mind virus and all this stuff that I think is pretty alienating for a lot of um, actual you know, middle of the road voters, and he was cozying up to Elon Musk and these billionaires and, and everything. And since then, he's been stumbling after, you know, time and time again. And I think it shows this is what happens when you're trying to run a campaign based solely on vanity and your persona and, and thinking, you know, now's your time and everything. Um, and you don't really care about governing objectives, um, or at least that's not trying to advance government is not, you know, the goal, even though as a representative, that is your role is to be a, an ambassador for um, government and a, and a public servant. And then you have Brandon Johnson, who just took over as mayor of Chicago and as much as people might have disagreements with his policy platform or anything like that, there's no doubt that he has exhibited, you know, professionalism and decorum and actual like love for the people of the city of Chicago within his first few weeks in office. You saw him throwing out the um, ball at the, the Cubs game and going to all these community events and giving hugs and shaking hands and then speaking after the uh, at his press conference after the city council debate yesterday, which, you know, if it would have been Lori Lightfoot, I guarantee you, you would have heard some really harsh words. She would have been um, most likely uh, going after either the protesters that were in the city council meeting or particular um, city council members and trying to creating some sense of uh, conflict. He kind of rose above it all and spoke about, you know, the future and, and looking towards a, a, a brighter Chicago and actually talked about how the tensions display that people are passionate and that's a positive thing when it comes to the future. And I think that that's because he believes in government and the role of himself as being somebody whose job is to uh, be the face of government and create one that is inviting for people. And I just think that's such a contrast with DeSantis as these two individuals that are now kind of becoming more public facing, both as DeSantis is running for office and as Brandon is coming into office, um, you're starting to see that in pretty stark display um, and I think it's instructive for, I mean, it's partially just the, the basic dichotomy between how conservatives and progressives view the role of government, which it's easier for conservatives because if you just want to break the thing you're running to, you know, be in charge of, it's a lot easier to then, you know, show that it's broken and say, hey, this is, you know, it's all a crapshoot and I'm going to fix it versus somebody who's trying to build up the um levers of government like what uh brandon johnson has talked about and yeah i think that this is um a moment we can see that on uh full display yeah i uh and i like to remind people i just did this in the column but just uh briefly remind people uh that brandon johnson uh back in the 2020 election cycle was elizabeth warren supporter 
uh, we had that debate uh, with uh, Carlos Merz Rosa. This is so uh, strange. He was at the hideout. We had a debate between Carlos, who was representing Bernie Sanders, and Brandon, who was representing Elizabeth Warren. And now, of course, uh, Carlos is the floor leader for uh, uh, Brandon Johnson, Mayor Johnson. Uh, and so, you know, I. I, I'm not, this is not my hating on Elizabeth Warren, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I love Elizabeth Warren as much as the rest of you, but I think she has a, a within the within the context of that election, uh, she was less of a lefty, if if you will, than Bernie Sanders. So yeah, he's not the caricature uh, that people have tried to paint him uh, out to be. And, uh, and I also like to point out that Miles Conflossen was knocking on doors in Iowa for Bernie Sanders, man, true believer back in 2020. So uh, Brandon Johnson, you could argue, is a little to the not as far to the left as uh, me or Miles Conflossen. Uh, and he's the mayor of the city of Chicago. All right, we're going to close with uh, some basketball talk. I got uh, Miles Conflossen on the show, a diehard Bulls fan. He loves the Bulls almost as much as I do. Because I have tons of faith that the Bulls are on a trajectory to become a deep playoff team anytime soon. So, I mean, I love the Bulls, and I'm going to keep watching them during the regular season. But, uh, yeah, if you're if you're counting out watching basketball, if the Bulls are not in the race, uh, I don't know. you got to find some other hobbies, I guess, during May and June. I, I have it's really hard for me to deal with uh, the I'm thinking of two people in particular. And I'm not going to mention their names because uh, it's too embarrassing to I, I push back with you a little bit about the Jimmy Butler trade only on this point uh, in its ancient history. If I could probably spend an hour on this, at least uh, Jimmy Butler was traded by the Chicago Bulls at the end of the 2017 uh, season to the Minnesota Timberwolves uh, for um, they flipped draft choices and they got Zach Levine in that deal. And so, uh, you know, I've heard Bulls fans go, could you imagine how great the Bulls would be with Jimmy Butler and Zach Levine? Hello? You only have Zach Levine because you traded Jimmy Butler. <laughs> but sometimes, man, Bulls fans are as illogical as Aldermen. And they're all from Chicago, so there's just a strain of a logic uh, with anything a Chicagoan uh, says. Uh, and But at the time, Miles, I don't know if you remember this. The Bulls had just, it had been three absolutely dreadful seasons in terms of disappointment. 2015, blowing the series uh, to LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. 2016, not even making the playoffs. 2017, up to the love over not that a great Boston Celtics team. And then Rajon Rondo gets injured, lose four in a row. And Bulls diehard Bulls fans were saying, Jimmy Butler's not the answer. You know, he's getting into basketball middle age. We'll never win a championship with Jimmy Butler. He's just going to guarantee us we're going to be in that hellish place of eighth place or seventh place, which is just basketball hell. I heard this argument from Bulls fans. I think you can even find Rick Morrissey and other columnists opining this in the newspaper. Trade him and let's let you know they love tanking. So they traded him and now he's proved to just get better and better with each year, right? And now they're like, oh, we should have kept them. I'm like, what? 
You weren't saying that in 2000. I don't, I don't think you and I ever had a conversation in 2017, so I can't say for certain what you were saying in 2017. Um, I never wanted to deal Jimmy Butler, and I think that you're, you're right that we got Zach Levine. We also got Chris Dunn and draft picks that became Laurie Markkinen. And, you know, Markkinen is now shining in Utah. He was a pretty mediocre player on the Bulls. Chris Dunn never became, you know, the defensive juggernaut he was hoped to be. And Zach Levine, I have a feeling they might deal uh, pretty soon, uh, you know, these days as well, because the Bulls are in the same position of being mired in mediocrity that we were bemoaning, you know, a few years ago. So we obviously didn't solve that problem. And meanwhile, uh, Jimmy is reaping the the spoils also with former Chicago Bull and DePaul alum Max Struess, who the Bulls, I think, foolishly let go. And now he's showing off he has star potential in Miami, uh, too. Some of that might be heat culture and the Pat Riley uh, expulsion thing. But um, I think that if the Bulls had, had held on to Jimmy. But, hey, we can't live in the past. We've got to look forward into the future. And right now, I'm just happy to see um, Jimmy having some success. And yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love Jimmy Butler. I uh, love his success. I wish you were still with the Bulls um, with you 100% on all that. And I think it's part of Jimmy Butler didn't want to leave the Bulls. Uh, he wanted to be a champion. He wanted to build a champion team in Chicago because they drafted him. He's very loyal. And the Bulls, uh, they really uh, <laughs> alienated Jimmy Butler when they did that. All right. And, uh, and one thing I'll say, yeah. one thing that Jimmy has said is that he lo- you know, he feeds off of negativity and he loves when crowds boo him. Uh, when he plays, you know, especially in his former uh, team's buildings like Philadelphia and Minnesota. But he did say, not in Chicago, please don't boo me in Chicago, because he still wants to feel the love from Chicago fans. And I think that, you know, is indicative of the type of player and kind of type of person he is and the relationship he still has with the fans in the city of Chicago. I think that's important. I still have my uh, The Butler Did It t-shirt which I purchased in 2017, Jimmy Butler in a Bulls uniform, the Butler did it. And uh, I can tell you right now, I don't know any Bulls fans that are uh, anti-Jimmy uh, Butler. They love Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler is right up there with Joe Kim Noah, Derek Rose. You know, this uh, 21st century generation of Bulls, no matter where they go, they'll always be loved by Bulls fans. Uh, his, I don't believe he's part of that montage I can't, you know that montage at the start of the Bulls games uh, at the stadium that they play where they start with the 66 Chicago Bulls and go all the way up to the modern-day Bulls? They got Jordan and Pippen. I don't know if he's on there. Uh, now I'm doing this from memory. I, I I don't think – maybe he is. I just can't remember. All right, any uh, articles that you want to tell folks about from In These Times before we go? Well, this would be a great time to subscribe to the print issue of the magazine because we have an incredible uh, profile of Brandon Johnson as the cover story of the new uh, issue by Wesley Lowry, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, a Washington Post reporter. He did a um, really incredible profile of Brandon Johnson. Um, I wrote a little intro thing early in um, in the issue for it. There's also an investigation by Bryce Covert into that's up online now. Folks can read about um, uh, the effects of the Dobbs decision on people who were in the process of trying to get an abortion when the law went into a, when uh, Roe got overturned. It's really important and incredible um, investigative journalism. So I encourage people to 
um, to to read that as well. And you know, as I often say, sign up for the newsletter, and uh, you can get uh, every Saturday in your inbox the rundown of everything we've published online. You know, everything we published in the magazine for the most part ends up online, so you can get it that way. But I definitely, you know, it's nice to get that print issue in your hands, and um, and I think it's the best way to to read. You know, take it on the bus, go out to the park. You can you know read a physical copy. This is a great time to um, subscribe to um, the print issue. So you can do all of that on inniestimes.com. Yeah, I urge everybody, at the very least, take that baby step of the newsletter. I get it every Saturday. I'm going to give a promotion every Saturday, man. I read the Indies Times, Miles' stories or the stories that he edited, and they have a different point of view, ladies and gentlemen, that are left to center point of view. I think it's refreshing. You need that because this is, Chicago is a city of mainstream that dominates the media. Uh, and so we have a very mainstream, whether you realize it or not, folks, <laughs> you're being fed. That's what you're being fed, and so it's it's. I think it's just helpful just to take a look at what what where the what the left is, because I think the actual the left is closer to where the country is uh, in its heart. Anyway, I like to believe that. Um, and again, I'll repeat. We'll, we'll close where we uh, we began. The vote did pass in the city council. I mean, I talk. I said I emphasize like what was ever fourteen or whatever it was. I voted against it, but it did pass. Pretty overwhelmingly. So, all right, Miles, blast talking to you as always. Talk to you real soon, all right? Sounds good. Have a good one. Right, that's a great, Miles Conflas. And I also want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job as he always does. And I'm sure Miles agrees with me when I said, producer Chris, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Betty J bonus interviews, and so much more, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow The Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram at Benny J Show and all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. <laughs>